1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Language. Today's guest is Tony Veal and we're talking about his book Exploding the Creativity Myth, Computational Foundations of Linguistic Creativity. It's an exploration of the underpinnings of creative language use, placing particular emphasis on how computers can be used to facilitate that process. In this interview, we discuss the potential roles of the computer in future creative language work and the implications that has for our understanding of creativity itself. And we see what the algorithmic perspective can tell us about human creative processes, and how unloved language features such as clichés and stereotypes can serve as the building blocks for genuinely novel forms of expression. I'm talking to Tony Veal about his book Exploding the Creativity Myth, The Computational Foundations of Linguistic Creativity. It's a lively and entertaining to us through recent work on computational modelling and emulation of classically creative language processes. Tony, in a nutshell, what is the creativity myth?
0: Right. Well, the creativity myth is actually a multitude of myths, I guess. And I should mention that the the title does seem a little ambiguous to many people. I'm not arguing, of course, that creativity itself is a myth, but that there are many myths about creativity that are popular and appeal to intuition, and which are just wrong or misleading. A variety of myths include the fact that you have to be somewhat special, or even a little crazy to be creative, or for instance, that children are more creative than adults, or that creativity involves rule-breaking, or creativity is a distinctly human process that cannot be modeled on a computer. So there's a whole range of myths that I wanted to tackle in this book, and uh, actually looking at the topic of computational modeling of creativity, especially in language, allows me to do that, I think, and hopefully persuade people that computers are not necessarily uncreative, even if they are uncreative most of the time.
1: So do you take a definition of creativity which you would see as being at odds with um, some things that are standardly assumed? Right.
0: This is actually a a difficulty in the field of creativity, and that difficulty is getting people to agree on a definition. So, there is a, a, a wide variety of definitions. There's a definition of the weak, essentially. Uh, it depends on your perspective. Now, if you're an essentialist and you like to boil a complex phenomenon down to, to a couple of necessary and sufficient conditions, then you'll seek out a definition that will be very general and not particularly useful. Uh, I've tried to avoid that. And, uh, I, I come from a computational background where we discuss. C- creativity every year at our international conference of computational creativity and we've effectively called the moratorium on discussions of definition of creativity because it simply cannot be done in a way that satisfies everybody unless you come up with an anodyne definition. So what I've tried to do is to focus on one aspect of creativity and hopefully appeal to people's intuitions to say, look, this phenomenon is creative but look at how it is modeled and look at the essentially algorithmic qualities of the processes that allow you to do this kind of thing. So I'm not trying to, to push a particular definition of creativity. Creativity is one of those family resemblance phenomena where people recognize creativity when they see it. But they find it remarkably hard to define it in a way that will cover every possible instance. Wittgenstein famously is the example of a game. To exemplify his notion of a family resemblance category. Every game will have similarities with other games, but there are no, there's not necessarily a core set of properties that all games will possess. And those properties, even if they were present, wouldn't work as a definition of game. You have to understand the, the totality of the concept. So I've tried to avoid that. I've tried to be non-essentialist that could be unsatisfying sometimes so I've tried to fill the gap somewhat by being as descriptive as I can about the subset of creativity that I'm looking at which is uh, linguistic creativity
1: Sure taking up the point about the definition or the inadequacy of definitions um, in the first chapter you challenged the polemical view about what's unimaginative or uh, non-creative language use in the famous um, polemical essay by George Orwell. Do you feel that approach is unhelpfully programmatic or, or just misguided in the way it's encoded, if you like? Yes,
0: uh, Orwell programmed there in his polemic, which is a very enjoyable essay. Uh, you can disagree with what he says, but admire the way he says it. it this is a, a, an evergreen topic, it pops up every few months in the newspapers. Someone is claiming that, oh, you don't speak the language properly. Right. This is the way you speak. This is not the way you speak. Right. Even today, I think the, the Guardian had an article on a movement in America where people are lambasting each other for not speaking American English properly. And of course, in lambasting each other, they're misusing language themselves. You can always point at people and say, this is not how you should use language. The key is not to be prescriptive or proscriptive. It's not meaningful or helpful to say, never use cliché, do not rely on stereotypes, do not use familiar idioms. You cannot avoid using these things. The key is to engage with these forms and try to be novel in how you use them. You cannot simply lens language of the bits and pieces that you do not like. You have to keep reinvigorating language by finding new purposes and new uses for existing forms. They're tired because they're used in the same way. If you find new uses for existing forms, you can actually uh, have a very vital form of language that doesn't, that doesn't stagnate. The stagnation, of course, is Orwell's fear for language. I don't think it's happened. He might well be horrified at the state of English today, but I don't think anyone can deny that it's a a vital language that's constantly changing.
1: Do you feel that uh, coming to this from a computational perspective gives you a slightly different angle on it, that in some sense perhaps Orwell is is introspecting in an unhelpful way about the creative process and is, uh, is missing insights about the way in which he and other people are actually using language creatively?
0: Yes, there's something special about the computational perspectives and that is that you cannot get anything to work on a computer unless you are very specific about what you mean. You cannot wave your hand at a computer and say, do what I mean, not what I say. So it's a, it's a very powerful asset test for your beliefs. If you rely on vague metaphor or on intuition, you express yourself in ways that sound persuasive but are actually quite hollow. That will not, that will not transform itself into a computational model. It will be missing some vital elements. Now, the, the way to test your, your perspective is to see, is it specific enough to model on a computer? If it is not, then you have work to do. Uh, uh, Orwell's perspective, while it's attractive, and it certainly delivers in an attractive and memorable way, just doesn't have enough detail, so he's he's skating on the surface of language. He, so I think he he misses the deep phenomena. He doesn't quite grasp the the importance of the forms that he himself uses. So that's why he's so dismissive about them.
1: A theme that uh, starts to surface when you talk about the uh, the use of computational approaches is the idea this was a familiar idea in many ways, of mastering conventions in the first place in order to be able to subvert them or riff on them or develop them in some way. Do you see that as being at the heart of the computational approach in some sense?
0: Well, it, it's certainly at the heart of my computational approach. Uh, so in the field of computational creativity, there is a, there's a variety of approaches. I guess the, the core or shared belief that we have in the field is that to be creative you must transcend what is called mere generation. Mere generation is when you use a formula to generate valid output and the output is valid merely because it was generated by a valid formula. Now in linguistics, there's a definition of creativity that goes back to Noam Chomsky, uh, which is this idea that every sentence that we utter is essentially creative because it's evidence of the generative capacity of language and indeed many of the sentences that we utter every day while they may be very banal probably have never been uttered in the history of man before and that makes them creative at some basic level but to be creative in the accepted sense you have to have a measure of novelty that is there has to be something new and stimulating about what you say and there has to be a measure of utility. You have to be harnessing utility to achieve a communicative goal. You have to be actually doing something with the generative capacity of language. So we all focus on generation and trying to uh, transcend mere generation, but my particular focus is on reusing the components of language which are lying around and which we're often quite sniffy about. We are dismissive of clichés. We're very disdainful of stereotypes. We don't quite appreciate the, the importance of this tacit knowledge that we all share. And which is sometimes, when it's exposed to scrutiny, shown to be wrong, yet we, we rely on it as a touchstone when we communicate with each other. We manipulate it. It's the raw material for creative language. Even in high-flying poetry, You need to refer to the real world in some evocative, intuitive way. And you need to work uh, convention at some level. So this is, I think, a point at which creative computation and artificial intelligence in general converge. Because to make computers intelligent, never mind creatives, they're going to need... Masses and masses of this tacit knowledge. And we can see this lying around in language, in our cliches, in our idioms, in our proverbs, in our stereotypes. So the approach I take, and which I describe in the book, is to harvest this knowledge automatically from the web by looking for things like proverbial similes on the web, extracting these world models of what are really quite banal pieces of knowledge, but they're insightful about how we see the world and we need this in our computer. We don't need the farmer's almanac on our computer. We don't need databases of physical facts or geographical locations. We don't even quite need Wikipedia. What we need is this tacit knowledge that we all share but which we rarely articulate except in these somewhat cliched or moribund forms. So. I see my approach of giving value or recognizing the value of these and showing how a computer can learn quite a lot about the world by harvesting them from the web.
1: You make a very interesting point, just to go back um, to what you were saying a moment ago, uh, that the sentences that we produce, the utterances that we utter, are in uh, some respect potentially novel and, and never heard before, but at another level potentially banal, and it's, Sort of an interesting feature of, of linguistic creativity in the in the Chomskyan sense that we can create completely new sentences that nevertheless strike us as banal when we when we hear them. Would it be fair to say that the kinds of structures that you're dealing with, uh, the, the the proverbs, the stereotypes, and so on, have some kind of richer quality as, in, as ingredients to this creativity than just than just plain words? Is that the is that the essence?
0: Yes, that, that's a very good way of putting it. Essentially, to get novelty and utility out of the words that we use, you have to aim for uh, evocative power. You have to try to build complex, stimulating mental imagery using the words that you compose into sentences. So if you have a collection of words in a sentence and they're grammatically well formed, you have a grammatically well-formed sentence but it actually doesn't do anything except state a rather bland fact. We're not going to see it as creative but if you can evoke a powerful image, richly drawn image in the listener's mind, that can be persuasive because it's affective, because it, it stimulates the emotional responses, because your words say much more uh, or imply much more than they say on the page. Then your your output is much more likely to be seen as creative, because you've understood the power of words. Words have more meaning than their dictionary definitions. They have the power to to stimulate, and to evoke, to paint mental images. Sometimes those mental images can be very surprising. They can contain incongruities. They can uh, challenge us. They can be mysterious. They can move us in, in emotional ways. So understanding the unwritten power of words is the key to being creative with words. You need much more than what you find in the dictionary to be creative with words.
1: At the risk of sliding back into a, into a definitional question, And in, in the following chapter, chapter 3, you explore the different approaches of the pros- producer and the consumer of creativity. It it strikes me that from the description of of, um, creativity in terms of affect in the recipient, it sort of invites an image of a world where the computer can be creative, but it needs the human intelligence to experience it. But am I thinking too narrowly there? Would you consider the the computer or a a, a computational system as being able to, in some sense, appreciate creativity in in a measurable way? Yes,
0: that's a a very good point, because at present, the... The somewhat fragmented nature of the field means that we're, we're trying to create software with some creative capacity. And of course, the judge of that creative capacity would be the human that experiences the output of the computer. Uh, that is the, the asset test for us. It's, it's not good enough for us to say, well... This joke isn't particularly funny, but I'm sure another computer would find it funny. I think people would recognize that as a, as, a, as a phony response. So we use human responses to guide the development of creative computers. But an important part of linguistic creativity is interpretation. All right. Somewhat limited theories of humor view jokes, for instance, as these logical traps through which uh, you guide a listener into some kind of fatal incongruity, and they must backtrack you know, the whole process. They find it challenging and somewhat uh, frustrating, and then they experience relief when they, when they solve the puzzle you've given them, and they laugh. That's it. That's too programmatic. What happens in most jokes is that a listener willingly meets you halfway, and assumes that you're trying to say something funny and collaborates and cooperates in the construction of the humorous meaning. So the successful telling of a joke requires creativity from the teller and from the listener. Which is why we we often feel a sense of pride for getting a joke, because we experience it as a as a creative challenge to ourselves, as well as an example of creativity by the speaker. Now to finally say that a computer has become creative or that computers are creative, we will need to demonstrate that computers can appreciate and collaborate with each other creatively and not simply cast witticisms out into the into the world for humans to laugh at or for humans to appreciate. There will come a time when we want our computers to, to be creative with each other. Now, I'm, I, I have to say... At this point, because when you talk about computers being creative, there's this uh, fear of Dr. Frankenstein. uh, Why are you trying to do this? The point, of course, is because humans are creative and we experience creativity when we deal with other humans. We want computers to give humans the full communicative experience when they communicate with humans. We want computers to interact, to appreciate our jokes, to generate jokes of their own, to generate ideas of their own, to be co-creators with us. The, the goal is not to replace human creativity. and The goal is certainly not to diminish human creativity. In fact, the, the purpose is to enhance human creativity by turning our software from feature-rich software like Photoshop into active collaborators that can sense where we're going that can riff with us i think that would be a, quite an exciting development in software so the goal is not to to replace humans or to to somehow argue that creativity does not exist
1: and the software you present in your in your book you discuss which is which is on your website is uh, is of this nature, essentially, is that at this stage, the proximate goal of, of the work is to produce tools which are an adjunct or an assistant or an input or enhancer of human creativity.
0: Yes, that's right. The, and there, there are two reasons for that. One is the, the, the view that I just expressed, that we want our creative software to be collaborators rather than replacements. And the second, of course, is that computation creativity is such a nascent field that we can't really expect it to do anything really meaningful on its own. It has to work with humans. But one of the the ways that uh, humans become creative is that they learn to be creative by working with other creative people. This view, this I guess, is another myth of creativity is that creativity is, in, is innate, it's a talent. Creativity is actually a skill. There may be some talent involved, but it's largely a skill. It's a skill that can be honed. We can learn to, to combine concepts in creative ways. We can learn strategies for creative ideation. We can learn to filter our ideas. We can learn to, to think laterally Uh, So by having computers interact with humans in this nascent space of creativity, uh, we give them the opportunity to learn from humans. I think it's worth mentioning as well that if if one is of the opinion that computers cannot be creative because algorithms are essentially uncreative, have a look at the self-help books in a bookshop that help you to be creative. All of those books are essentially selling algorithms that are to be executed by humans themselves with pencil and paper. The algorithmic view of creativity is quite pervasive, even amongst people who don't believe in the creative power of computers. Those books, of course, try to help people to be more creative. And I think one of the areas for our creative software is to help people become more creative.
1: Yes, it's an interesting sort of extension of the, of the computational approach, or, or the metaphor at least, that there's this, this sort of genre of, of uh, life hacking, as it's sometimes described, the idea of being able to implement uh, the kind of convenient shortcuts to achieve goals like creativity and, and some other, other things, that other topics of self-help books, by some convenient short-circuit process, which is analogous or analogized to the process that we would use to get a computer to do something. So do you feel that the, there's some kind of resistance weakening to the, um, to the idea that there is a categorical distinction between, for example, human and computer creativity?
0: Yes, I do. I, I think it it is gradually weakening. Uh, as computers demonstrate excellence in non-creative but very human areas, of activity, I think people are more willing to consider the possibility that computers are creative. Certainly, uh, computers have been used to generate, let's say, puns. I'm not particularly fond of puns, but puns are the most approachable form of humor for a computer to generate. And uh, computer puns, when presented to children, are considered to be just as humorous as the human-generated puns that you find in children's joke joke books and probably a good deal more funny than than the awful things that you find in uh, Christmas crackers and fortune cookies. Now, one of the questions, and I I think it's an interesting uh, sociological question, is when computers or as computers gradually become more creative human society is undoubtedly going to change its definition of creativity. Creativity is already a moving target, which is one of the reasons why we find it so hard to to nail down with a formal definition. Uh, modern creativity, or the, the sense of the word creativity, is quite different to the sense of the word that existed during the Renaissance, for instance. And as computers become more creative in algorithmic ways, I think human society is going to prize more highly the kinds of creativity that computers can still not model effectively. So our definitions will change. It may come to a a polarizing state where we talk about, quite openly, the creativity of computers versus the creativity of human beings, which will be an advance in itself. Because at least it admits that computers can be creative, even if it's a different kind of creativity. So I think we can look forward to uh, interesting debates about the nature of creativity and uh, interesting changes in our perceptions of creativity as computers become more visibly creative.
1: Uh, You rather anticipated the question I was was going to ask there, which was uh, whether you saw this notion of creativity kind of chasing human computers chasing human creativity into a smaller space or onto a sort of meta-level of of, um, uh, representations that weren't really captured by what computers could do at any given stage. You mentioned the changing notion of creativity across time. Here I'm sort of thinking algorithmic questions like the authorship of paintings attributed to, a, to an artist's workshop, for instance, and the controversy about, say, Damien First spin painting. Is that something that kind of goes around in, in time, the way that we as a society feel about that sort of creativity, in your impression?
0: Yes, uh, I think so. I mean, y- you look at the, the invention of the camera and how that changed our um, appreciation of creativity in visual art. Human artists shifted away from photorealism and the, the faithful rendering of physical reality to looking beyond the reality to um, to consider cognitive aspects of the, the feelings of the viewer or the, the emotions of the painter, communicating a larger meaning than than a, a picture of a scene itself. Actually, you, you talk about the. The workshop approach of uh, modern artists. But of course, even in the Renaissance, you had artists like Raphael, who had, sure. who had large workshops. And today, we still find it difficult to pin down or to attribute paintings to either an old master or to one of his proteges in his workshop. Uh, mainly because of this, I have the idea I'll start the painting, you finish it, or. I'll do the intellectual part, and you do the grunt work. There's certainly room for computers to interact with computers in that, or for computers to interact with humans in that sense, where the human provides the the intellectual shell for an idea, and a computer does the what-if reasoning to flesh it out. But it's also uh, possible that we can develop software to work the other way, where a computer develops the the high concept, the, the germ of an idea and a human fleshes it out, feeds it back to the computer to be critiqued by the computer. This is what I meant earlier by co creativity, the idea that uh, by making our computers smarter, we can bounce ideas around with computers. Each time we bounce an idea off a computer, it comes back with added value. We add value and we we have this back and forth. We don't have this ability yet with computers. We have this master-slave mentality where the software reacts exactly to our our command, say in Photoshop or in Microsoft Word. The computer is not generating, it's responding. Uh, But we could have this workshop approach that you mentioned where the computer where the computer is effectively a protege or even a whole collection of proteges because we can have multiple versions of the software running in parallel, each providing competing ideas, and where the human is the is the master artist, so to speak. Or even in learning contexts, we could have the computer acting as the master and the human acting as a student, learning how to become the master. It's it's all very exciting, I think, in in terms of the possibilities of software. Uh, And you don't really need to believe in the true creative potential of computers to believe in the possibility that computers can be clever enough to at least simulate this to a degree where it would be useful and educational.
1: So, turning to your own to your own software, uh, do you see that as beginning, in some sense, to disrupt that master-slave relationship to try and get a little bit more dynamism or interaction into into that process?
0: Yes. Now, when you come to talk about specific software, there is this this chasm or gulch because the the software, in human creative terms is still very primitive. and I wouldn't like, even for one second, to, to suggest that it was doing more than it seems to be doing. But yes, uh, I like to think that, let's say, in the generation of poetry, that the computer would be more than a thesaurus. A tes- the thesaurus is still one of the most useful tools that a writer has. And uh, computers have made Uh, the thesaurus much easier to use and brought it much more into the loop in writing. But what I'm looking at is the possibility of a, a creative thesaurus where the computer is actually generating whole lines for you and saying, you want to suggest this meaning or you want to convey this idea? How about this line? How about this line? Here's 10 different ways of saying this. Here's the here is my rationale for each of them, here are the feelings that each will convey. Look at what I've done here, this is a metaphor, this is an analogy. Uh, this is the essence I think of creative computing uh, and what makes it different from mere generation. The system should not simply generate outputs which are dumped in front of the user but should be able to explain and appreciate and rank and defend and champion its own ideas. Uh, now, to do that on the large scale, which is our ultimate goal, we're going to have to do it on the small scale first. And I do see my software as a very, very simple and natural, uh step in this direction. There's a, I mean, there's a huge amount of work to be done, but uh, really we're at the, at the stage where we're battling with ideas and we're trying to set a direction. Uh, even if you have different ideas, I think with the, the presence of the web, it should be possible and in fact it should be almost mandatory in our research field to put everything that we do onto the web as a form of public application to get feedback, to to make sure that our demonstration systems leave the laboratory and get out into the world where we can get feedback from humans and where we can demonstrate palpable if very incremental pro, uh, progress.
1: What kind of feedback have you had on the, on the systems that you've made available? Are they being used uh, sort of actively and proactively by creative uh, individuals or are, are people sort of more at the level of considering them a curiosity that they don't quite know how to apply yet?
0: Yes, uh, the latter is is a good description. They they stimulate curiosity. I think they make people smile. Right. When I see people talking about them, it is with this sense of playful curiosity. And I, I like to think with a a sense that this is interesting and one day it might actually be useful. I I don't think that anyone is actively using it, except myself. I use my own software quite a bit. Uh, you have to eat your own dog food in the software world or drink your own Kool-Aid. If you're not going to use your own software, I don't think you can expect anybody else to do it. So the the various ideas on linguistic variation and the exploitation of stereotypes that I describe in the book, I use my software to, to suggest ideas along those lines and I often find myself using my software as an alternative to, say, the thesaurus and Microsoft Word, I think what we'll end up doing uh, with creative software is we're not going to have a Manhattan project where suddenly the world sits up and notices our software. I think what will happen is that we will gradually seduce people step by step by incrementally improving the quality of the, the tools and the services that our software can provide to users. I think one day people might notice, hey, this is, quite, this is quite creative. My thesaurus has just generated or suggested an original metaphor. It's not simply recycling synonyms for me. I think we will sneak up on people with our software, and I mean that in a good way, of course that uh, we're not going to hit people over the head and say, use this, it's creative. We're going to have to uh, make our software first useful, then creative. It doesn't work the other way, I think. Creative first, useful second, I don't think people will use it.
1: I suppose a question that arises is, in in the case of, say, a thesaurus, there's a fairly clear... Notion of authorship: somebody somebody compiles or a sort of team of people compile the dictionary, and, and then other people refer to it. In the case of the material that's online, of course, it's user contributed in some sense. It's a vast repository of what people are what people are saying, and at this time, they're individuals rather than people using computational uh, creativity aids for the most part. And where is the point at which the software becomes able to obtain new expressions or to derive new expressions that people, that nobody's used before? I think the, the
0: software is already capable of doing that by sticking mm-hmm. together elements that uh, people have used before. Now, this is a, a very old insight about creativity. I mean, you, even in Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, uh, there is this claim made about it that there is nothing new under the sun. Effectively, everything that, that we as humans do, everything apparently novel, is simply the, the combination of existing elements. And the insight where it exists is in knowing which elements used in which combinations give us the most value. So computers do this all the time. It's a question of which resources do you give them to play with and to combine? They're effectively exploring a space of uh, possibilities which is defined by the the elements at their disposal, the inventory of elements, which in the case of linguistic generation would be the various words, phrases, metaphors, tropes, and uh, rhetorical devices, and so forth. Uh, one of my favorite writers, and I I quote him a few times, or at least quote some of his examples a few times in the book, is Raymond Chandler, who effectively elevated the the detective story into a literary art. And In his essay, The Simple Art of Murder, he describes the process of good writing as finding a bridge between what one wants to say and what one knows how to say. That's effectively a search process. Uh, AI is often ridiculed for viewing everything as search. But here we have a, a very creative writer expressing the AI perspective that you have to search, find the path between what you want to say and what you know how to say. What you know how to say is, of course, your stock of words, your phrases, your stereotypes, your tropes, rhetorical devices, and how you combine them is the key to saying what you want to say, using what you know how to say. The more of these basic elements that we give our computers to combine in novel and creative ways, the more expressive our computers will be, which is why in the book I spend the most time, in order my prime focus in the book is on acquiring these things automatically from the web. So when the when the software generates combinations, it may well be that the combinations don't exist already, but the elements in the combinations do exist. That's, that's the point, that you combine what you know to generate something novel and useful. Novel in the context, but perhaps historically novel as well. Uh, for those listeners who are interested in the computational modeling of creativity, your question raises uh, or echoes an interesting distinction that's made in the literature, and that is between what is called P creativity and H creativity. The distinction was uh, articulated by Margaret Bowden, a famous creativity researcher, still active researcher, and essentially. P-creativity is psychological creativity. It's when an agent, a human or a computer, does something that to them is novel and original. H-creativity is when someone does something, P-creative, and it turns out that it's new to the society as well. When we value creativity or when we load this and point at this and say, oh, look at Einstein or look at Mozart, look at Euclid or Kepler or Newton, we're, we're actually lauding H-creativity. We're looking at the output of these people and saying they changed society by doing something that no one had thought of before. Uh, now, maybe that H-creativity is the most valuable in a historical sense, but much of the creativity that we experience on a day-to-day basis is P-creative generate a joke or a witticism. If one was to check, maybe it was generated before, but in the context in which I use it, that does not matter one jot. Now, when our computers are creative, it is quite likely that they're going to be peak creative. But I don't think that diminishes the utility of their creativity in any way. We're not trying to build computers that will change the course of society. We're trying to build computers and software that will interact with us on a daily basis and make our lives a little bit more interesting. We don't want to radically change the world. We just want our lives and our software to be a little bit more entertaining, a little bit more imaginative,
1: and a little bit more helpful. Turning back, if I may, to the um, acquisitional learning, are there interesting differences in the dynamics between the way a computer develops and uh, the way a human develops in that sense. Are these systems sort of categorically different?
0: I I think they they are quite different, but you could get an energetic debate about whether they are Uh, different in kind or by degree. For one, humans take a long time to learn. It's very important that when we compare humans and computers that we, we don't diminish exactly what it is that a human achieves. And I said that humans take a long time to learn, we learn a lot in that time, and we do it well. We do it much better than a computer.
1: And, and the so far, input, I was going to say, is structured in a particular way as well. For humans. Yes, there's a
0: an awful lot of feedback both uh, passive feedback from the affordances of the context and active feedback by parents and teachers and uh, our peers. And uh, we, we learn to navigate using uh, subtle cues. And the cues are often not marked. They're not marked for our educational content. We simply uh, register as many salient details as possible. Uh, now we learn to reuse. We learn the basic components. I think originality is a topic that I I avoid, I studiously avoid in the in the book because it is one of the it is one of the dankest and uh, least helpful areas of creativity, even though it's one of the areas that people think of most. I think if you uh, think of say Picasso, who was a wonderfully creative artist who uh, was quite insightful about his own processes. He famously said that um, good artists borrow and great artists steal. I think that's an interesting insight into uh, this reuse, this learning things, acquiring things through experience and then reusing them. If you reuse something uh, without adding additional value, it becomes borrowing. Borrowing, something that is borrowed, remains associated with the owner. Stealing is when you take something and you add so much value, you make it your own and it becomes associated with you. And I'm pretty sure that's what Picasso meant when he said, a great artist steal. But they take something that already exists and they add so much value to it, but it becomes distinctly their own. This is, of course, what uh, Steve Jobs quoted when he was referring to uh, Apple's use of technology and ideas that was first developed by Xerox, which was later used by Microsoft as well, that they made it distinctively their own. So that became Apple technology, distinctively Apple technology. So when we have, or when we discuss the idea of computers learning things in their interaction with the world, with humans or perhaps with the text of the web and reusing those things. They can be reused in ways that are surprising, that do not seem to us immediately as a reuse. And I think that is, that is the level of creativity that uh, we aspire to when we admire people like Picasso or even Steve Jobs. That we We take something, we see value in it that others have not seen. and I I have a chapter on this in the book, Chapter 7, Think Like an Investor, on how to see the, the secondary qualities of things and how to see value in those secondary qualities and make them primary qualities. So we can have a reuse model of creativity. We can have computers learning mimicking, uh, recognizing, and acquiring elements from the behavior of humans in real-world contexts or on the web. And we're using them in ways that become distinctly the activities of the computer, just as we do as humans. When we can do that effectively, I think uh, we will recognize that our computers are created. And this is an old maxim in poetry. He who writes it best, steal it best. I think is how it's put traditionally. But uh, there really is nothing new. The novelty derives from how existing ideas are used, the spin we put on them, the intriguing, unexpected combinations into which we place them. That is the essence. Uh, And it's a... an inherently computer-friendly approach to, to creativity. So it's, uh, I think that by studying computational creativity, we're actually going to get insights into human creativity in a way that will help us enhance and foster human creativity and make humans more creative. As I said, the goal is not to replace human creativity, but to collaborate and simultaneously increase the creativity of computers and humans in cooperation with each other.
1: I'd like to conclude by asking uh, how you're taking this work forward, because I very distinctly get the impression that you're, that you're at the threshold of a very exciting field with enormous amount of potential, which I think is, is really manifest in your book and in this interview. Which, which particular directions are you pursuing in the immediate future?
0: Yes, that's a, thank you for that question. That's an interesting question because there, there's generally two ways of working. You, you see an opportunity that is presented by the software to develop it in certain ways and you follow your notes. And then there is the, the strategic approach where you say, what does the field need and where should we be going as a field? And I think each of us who works in the area of computational creativity and it's a growing field, we all follow our nose to an extent, but uh, we're also, as a as a community, trying to to map out where the field should be going and how it should be developing. And uh, in this regard, um, we're quite happy, and actually, quite excited that the European Union, the European Commission specifically, which funds research in Europe, is taking a, a very positive view of. Uh, computational creativity at the moment and is uh, seeking to fund it in a variety of ways and uh, we ourselves have just been given uh, a coordination uh, grant to to build up the field of computational creativity. We call the, the project Prosecco promoting the scientific exploration of computational creativity and uh, this, this European Commission uh, funding will allow us to, to run summer schools and autumn schools to uh, essentially educate the next generation of computational creativity researchers to broaden the field and to, to get more software generated, to get more creative software out there and to create the, the infrastructure of tools that will allow people to Combine their systems. This really is the key. Uh, Many of us who interact at our conferences and our meetings have similar ideas about creativity, but we tend to work in silos. So I work on linguistic creativity. My colleagues work on visual creativity or storytelling or game generation. We need to tie these things together to build ever more complex systems that uh, use each other, riff off each other to produce ever more complex outputs. So that's really where the field is going, is to go beyond each researcher's relatively focused and simple systems to build comprehensive, complex, multi-featured systems. And I think we're going to get there because of the support of funding organizations like the European Commission because of community efforts, and because we see that when we talk about computational creativity to students, they see something in it. It it captures what they thought artificial intelligence would be when they went to university. The the, the somewhat on-the-edge, exciting aspect of getting computers to do the things that are really worth mimicking in humans. And that's where the field is going. And that's where hopefully my research is going too, is in building on each other's successes and harnessing them and combining them into systems that can credibly be said to be creative.
1: Well, it sounds like a very uh, encouraging program going forward, and I hope and expect that we'll be hearing a lot more more about it in the future. But now I'm going to say, Tony Bill, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It was... It was very
0: nice to talk to you about this, and it's always nice to talk about computational creativity.
1: I've been talking to Tony Veal about his book Exploding the Creativity Myth, Computational Foundations of Linguistic Creativity. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.